Alaska Teen Media Institute. This is Zoom Room, a youth-produced podcast where we zoom into a different theme or topic through interviews and conversations relevant to us, the youth of Alaska. I'm At Me producer Chloe Chobel. This episode is part of At Me's Youth Health Reporters cohort, where youth develop the skills to create stories on health and safety issues within their community. During our sessions, we also hear from professional journalists who cover public health and safety in Alaska. One of our guest speakers was Megan Edge, the communications director for the ACLU of Alaska. She also worked for the state of Alaska on prison reform issues and was a reporter for the Alaska Dispatch News. She spoke with our health reporters cohort to talk about reporting on sensitive topics, the work that she's currently doing with the ACLU, and how her early work covering court cases changed her perspective on journalism. She spoke with At Me senior producer Quinn White on March 10th, 2021. Can you tell me a little bit about the work you do now at the ACLU? So the uh, the ACLU has across this country has been around for 100 years. This year is actually 50 years in Alaska for us. And so the ACLU works to, we use the constitution um, as a tool to protect people's civil liberties and your right to equality. Um, you know, so we use it as a tool to defend those, to make sure that like, when we're talking about we the people in the constitution, um, that we the people actually means all of us. And so that was drafted into the constitution as this promise, but as I'm sure you're aware, when the constitution was drafted, that was actually not the case. Um, you know, women weren't seen as equal, people of color were not seen as equal. Um, and so... The constitution is full of a lot of promises and our job is to ensure that those promises are being upheld. And there's a few ways that we can do that. So um, what people are most familiar with our organization for um, is what we do with litigation um, and in a courtroom, but we look at that as defense. So when we go into a courtroom and we represent people, harm has already been done um, but the other wing of that where we get to play offense is through advocacy and through advocacy, we can change policies. We can work with lawmakers. We can work with directly impacted people to break down systemic racism and we can do it before harms have occurred. So we look at advocacy as the offense and litigation as the defense. Um, and as the communications director, I'm very lucky because I get to work in all of those worlds. Um, I'm not just working on communications related to litigation. I work on communications related to policy work that we're doing. I work on communications toward um, for the impacted people that we serve. Um, and so I get to sort of work with everybody. Um, I think communications um, is interesting. People really under, underestimate the power of communication and what you're able to do, um, but I, you know, I'm biased, but I think communication is really where you make the most substantial change because you can win in a courtroom and you can change laws, but if you haven't changed people's hearts and minds, if you haven't educated them, those, we, those, those wins mean nothing because you have to create a cultural shift. So what that means in application is, um, you know, you look at how Jim Crow was dismantled in the South. 
So Jim Crow was dismantled in the South, but that did not end racism in the South because that requires a cultural shift. And that's where communications comes into play. So as a former journalist and in my job now, I have an immense amount of power to influence the way people see their community, their neighbors, the oppressed. I have platforms to empower people who um, would otherwise be voiceless. So it's a really powerful role that's important to everything else that we do. What is the ACL doing during the pandemic to help people disproportionately affected by COVID-19? So the ACLU, um, we have been monitoring policies that, and decisions that have been made since the start of the pandemic. And the ACLU, we are experts in a lot of things, but for healthcare decisions, you know, we leave that to scientists, not politicians, but to scientists. Um, so since the start of the pandemic, you know, we're reviewing different municipal orders and procedures and state mandates, um, but where we've focused, focused the, most of our efforts, um, I guess our most concentrated efforts, um, have been towards the um, incarcerated population. Um, incarcerated people are the most underserved population in the state of Alaska, um, and in the Alaska Constitution, which we fight for to protect. Um, everybody has a right to rehabilitation. Alaska does not have the death penalty. And so we've been focusing on um, making sure that incarcerated people still have the right to rehabilitation. They still have access to the vaccine so they can see their ch children again, so they can do programming again. Um, that's where we have focused a lot of our efforts during the pandemic. Can you tell me about some of the Alaska ACLU's other recent accomplishments? Yeah, so we, um, um, a couple of years ago, Governor Dunleavy um, slashed the court's budget um, because the Alaska Supreme Court ruled to protect a woman's right to choose whether or not she wants to be a parent. Um, and the governor found that decision at odds with his own personal belief. So he took it out on the entirety of the court system by reducing their budget um, because he was at odds with this decision. And that's a blatant violation of the separation of powers. Um, you know, the executive branch and the judicial branch are um, separate for a reason. And Alaska has a very highly revered judicial branch, meaning, um, you know, their decisions are based, they're independent, they're staunchly independent, they're models of the rest of the country. And it's because they make decisions that are based in the law, not based off of a politician's personal preference. Um, so we just finished that case this winter. Um, we won it. Um, so that funding will go back to the court system um, at the fiscal turn here. Um, and it sets a precedent that the executive branch can't take punitive action towards another branch because they just don't like it. Um, that's not a good enough reason. You know, Governor Dunleavy's red pen does not have that power. Um, so that's one recent case. Um, and then we're also representing doctors who were fired from the Alaska Psychiatric Institute um, when the Dunleavy administration took over um, because these doctors would not 
pledge their allegiance to Governor Dunleavy because they take an uh, oath to always do what's right for their patients, which is not always in line with what politicians want to do. And since they wouldn't sign their allegiance over to Governor Dunleavy, he fired them. And uh, we're still in the midst of that case. And then we also have work going on in Nome for a woman who was um, sexually assaulted. And then the Nome Police Department chose to do nothing to investigate her case because she's Alaska Native. So on your ACLU bio, it says that your strongest belief is that we'd all be a lot better off if everyone <laughs> had a chance to be heard and if we all were willing to listen. So can you tell me about what led you to that thought? Yeah, so you know, um, as, a, as a young journalist in Alaska, um, as most young journalists start out, I was a cops and courts reporter. You know, I sat through trials, I went to a lot of crime scenes, and I felt entitled to tell the stories of these people when they were charged with crimes. Um, but I didn't really tell their stories. I took the information that I got in a charging document and what police officers told me and what I heard in a courtroom. And then I villainized these human beings in like 800 words or less, um, because that's how I was taught to write cops and courts stories. And then I ended up working for Department of Corrections and I met these people I wrote about in my stories and I felt absolutely horrible because what was painfully clear to me was that um, I really knew nothing about these people. While they were being tried in the court of law, I was trying them in the court of public opinion. Um, and I didn't realize how much power I had and how much I was shaping um, a narrative and a community that was detrimental to our community. And so um, I uh, started working for DOC and I met these people and they started telling me their stories. And I would always, I got to a point where I would just start admitting to people, you know, I actually covered your trial and they were kind and um, forgiving for the way I told their stories because there's so much more to somebody's story, right? Than like one bad decision or one bad moment. And there's a lot that leads people to committing a crime, whether that's stealing a car or taking a life. And the lessons that the public could learn um, from hearing their whole story, not just about the crime, are way greater. Because like, what's the value in rehashing the details of somebody's crime? Like, what good is that doing in our community? But there would be a lot more benefit if you wanna talk about public safety and understanding of how people got into those positions. And so prison forced me to listen to people who I probably would not have otherwise listened to. Um, and to be compassionate and to hear them. It's not condoning any of the bad things that happened, but it's to understand human beings. You know, Alaska is in the midst of a mass incarceration crisis, and you know there's roughly 4,500 people in prison, and not all of those people are just inherently dangerous. Um, and so prison forced me to want to listen, and I feel like it was you can change people's minds, you can help them become compassionate. Um, if you give them opportunities to listen to people who have different experiences, but it only works if you're willing to listen to what they have to say, 
even if you don't agree with it. Absolutely. And it's really interesting how you went from one side of the spectrum to <laughs> the complete other. Um, and it totally changed your perspective. That's so interesting. Yeah, it showed me though, like how much power, you know, the power of the pen, you know, as a 20 year old or 21 year old, like, I didn't know how influential what I did was, but like, I look at it this way. I, I think about the term inmate. I used to write the word inmate in my story over and over and over again, or prisoner or felon or whatever, pick your, pick your term. I used to use these terms and, and it's dehumanizing. So when I would write those in my story, I was inadvertently dehumanizing these people to, you know, 20,000 ADN readers um, simply by the language that I chose because like a prisoner or inmate isn't an identity, it's a circumstance. Um, you know, people who are incarcerated are people. They're not, you know, and you can make the same argument about slavery. You know, it's a, it's a circumstance. Like you are not a slave, you are a person. Your circumstance is that you live within the confines of slavery. Um, and so there's just so much power in it. And, you know, you don't learn those lessons until people teach them to you though. But they're hard to listen to, especially when it's a criticism of, of you. So the group, um, the group of health reporters that we're working with we are all kind of, you know, we're young adults and we're trying to figure out like how to wield that power of the pen, like you said. And so can you kind of um, tell me more about what really draws you into a story? People, people draw me into a story. So whether that's the impact, um, I think it's really easy in the 24 hour news cycle, um, in the age of social media, I think it's, I, you know, I think it's really easy to do things for the sake of like getting it done quickly and doing it timely and getting clicks and likes. And it, it's really easy to fall into that routine um, because when you work in, you know, news in this day and age, you know that those clicks or those likes or your followers, like, that all contributes to your paycheck. So, so like when I'm picking a story though, I, I, I try and think about like making this about the people and like not just what readers want to hear, but what the world needs to hear. And sometimes what the world needs to hear makes them uncomfortable, but that's why you have to use your best judgment. And I always really tried to focus and I think it's smart to focus. And I wish that I understood this better when I was younger, but I really tried to focus all of my stories on people and, and elevating people and humanizing people. Um, and if you want people to care about an issue, whether that's the budget or a prison crisis, you know, you have to explain to people why that matters to them and you connect with them through their humanity and you can tell that story. And one thing that you have to remember in news is that you are powerful, you have a huge audience and you can use that that power for good or for evil, um, but you have to be smart enough to know the difference. And, you know, I think with like cops and courts reporting, I was just very naive. Like I felt entitled to that information. Well, like these are public records. Like my community needs to know if somebody was killed and like 
sure, but like, what's the value? Like, what is your community gonna take away from that story? Um, because it's also really easy in that space to reinforce things that are detrimental to progress. Um, and, you know, and I would say like my advice to any starting journalist would be to like, just talk to as many people as you can, even if it's not related to your beat or these issues, because a lot of these issues that we're talking about, you can talk about healthcare and that connects to prisons or policing and racism. It's all um, interconnected. And so you just have to talk to people and listen to people and learn from their experience. And it doesn't mean that you have to agree with it, but it will make you a more informed and a better educated reporter. We'll be right back. This episode was produced as part of ATME's Youth Health Reporters Cohort where youth producers get to speak with professional journalists who cover public health and safety in Alaska. If you're interested in digging into Alaskan health issues, apply to become a youth health reporter at ATME. We're looking for youth ages 13 to 21 to produce feature news pieces on health topics of their choice, with the help and mentorship of ATME staff and the Alaska Press Corps. For more information and to apply, visit our website at alaskateenmedia.org. Now back to Quinn's interview with Megan Edge. So can you give me an example um, of a story that you've worked on that you felt was particularly impactful? Absolutely. So, you know, when I look back at my career in journalism and um, I reflect on the ones I remember, that was that was part of like the haunting experience about meeting people I was reading uh, or writing about, you know, when I went to work in prisons was like some of them, I didn't even remember their names. I would meet them and Google them to see, you know, why it was familiar. And then I'd find my byline on a story. Um, so there's a lot of stories like that, that you write in your career that you just don't remember. But um, the stories that made a difference are stories you remember. And to me, the story that always stands out um, the most is actually a story I wrote about a young man named Destry Murphy. Um, I was introduced to, to Destry's story um, after he died. That summer, there had been multiple people who were experiencing homelessness. Um, they passed away from a variety of different circumstances. They weren't connected. And reporting on homeless deaths is really tricky because much of the community just doesn't care. Um, and it's a, you know, they're more inconvenienced or they don't really understand the situation. They don't feel like people who are experiencing homelessness are relatable because they're not experiencing homelessness. So we got this, these series of homeless deaths and, um, I was determined to report on them. Um, and through that, I got to meet the family of Destry Murphy. And Destry was um, in his early 20s, and he was found dead in a tent along Campbell Creek. Um, and, you know, I did what any reporter does in that situation. And, you know, you go to the scene, you start looking around, and this camp that he had been staying at, you know, it was just full of 
I don't know, the people, the, the stuff that people use to live, blankets and dishes and food. Um, and I started trying to track down his family. Um, and I ended up connecting to his father. And homeless deaths are also tricky because it's sometimes very hard to find people who, um, who I can reach through Facebook or I can, you know, find a phone number for. It's very hard to find those things for a lot of the homeless population. Um, but I ended up finding Destry's dad. Um, and so Destry's story was that Destry had, um, he had spent some time in Alaska as like a, as a young man, as a kid, and then um, moved with his dad and his stepmom and step siblings uh, to the Midwest. And then um, ended up dropping out of school. He had really, really bad diabetes, which ultimately um, is what killed him. And he came back to Alaska to live with friends and ended up homeless and in and out of hospitals because of um, his very severe diabetes. And um, and Destry is, you know, to like paint the picture, like Destry was like, he looked thin and fit and he had this like thick black hair and in pictures I saw of him with his family, he's like smiling and he's got this like adorable boyish grin. He looks like anybody that, you know, I don't know, I would want to be friends with. He looked nice, he looked kind. And um, I ended up connecting with his dad and, and his dad told me that what bothered him reading the press was that people just assumed that, uh, that Destry was just another homeless guy who wasn't worth anything, who must be homeless because he doesn't have anyone or he must be a addict or, you know, pick your stereotype. Um, he was so disheartened reading the comments um, and the things people said, and even how the Anchorage Police Department talked about his death. Like, it was a homeless kid, he's fine, you know, and it was just really cold and callous and it really bothered his dad. So I ended up writing the story just about Destry, um, about how he ended up homeless in Alaska, about his family that loved him, about the way his dad took the news when the police officers showed up at his door to tell him that his son had died. And it struck me because Destry wasn't a bad guy, wasn't a bad kid. He had a family that loved him. He had little sisters that looked up to him. He had tried some different avenues in his life to become, I think, a chef, to go back to school. And he had a hard life. And there's a million little reasons why Destry ended up in that tent. And, you know, when Destry died, he was with friends. And he, there's a video of him actually dying. And his friends left him there because they were afraid to talk to the police. Oh, my and, God. Yeah, and all of this really bothered his dad that like Destry was alone. 
that people just assumed that nobody loved Destry because how he was found. And it couldn't have been further from the truth. And so I wrote this story and when, um, and, and I was never prouder of her story because I felt like for the first time, I wrote something about somebody's life that wasn't just they're a bad guy or they're homeless or they're junkie. Like it, it wasn't any of that. Like here's this human being and learn from his story so we can do better in addressing the inequities that lead to people to be homeless. Um, whether that's through like a lack of mental health and healthcare services, whether that's a lack of opportunity, you know, there's a million things that we can do better as a society to prevent senseless deaths like deaths from happening. Um, and, you know, I, I got a lot of kudos from my colleagues, which felt good, you know, like newspaper editors can be kind of curmudgeons and, you know, that was great. But what touched me was his dad and his stepmom and his little sisters flew to Alaska to collect what little belongings he had and his remains and to go through that process. And they made a point to come by the ADN office. Um, they wanted copies of the stories, but they wanted to meet me. And, you know, I'm not much of a hugger. <laughs> um, but when I walked out the front to get them, uh, his dad just gave me this big hug and told me that he felt like he, he was grateful for the story because it gave value to Destry's life. It wasn't just, it, it, it wasn't just, here's a homeless guy who died. It's, this is what we can do better as a society to prevent deaths like Destry's. And, you know, I still, you know, I'm Facebook friends with Destry's family. And um, every once in a while, like his dad will post a picture of him when he was younger on his birthdays. And I'm always so touched that I've been allowed to stay in their life because that was probably the first big lesson that I really received that <clears throat> what you write makes a difference. And maybe what I wrote only made a difference to Destry's name and to Destry's family, but I made a difference in a positive way to somebody and I told the world more than a homeless guy died. And so there's just a lot of power in that. And it made me reevaluate how I wanted to do to tell any story and to focus them around people and to not, you know, not just say, this is a homeless guy or this is a bad guy, but this is how this happened because that's where the value comes from. That's how we progress as a society. That's how you educate and inform people in a valuable way. How do you write about a topic like homelessness in a way that's not further perpetuating a stereotype? you choose your language carefully. Um, you choose what you say carefully and you look deeper than the surface. I mean, homelessness, like being, you know, a prisoner or, you know, it's, it's a circumstance. It's not an identity. You know, one thing I thought about when I was writing that story was if Destry was my brother, how would I write the story? I wouldn't just write this is what happened in the last moments that Destry was alive. I would write about what he contributed to the world, what he brought to the world and who he was. It's keeping the focus on 
the human aspect, not the circumstance, not the sensationalized details, but it requires you to write every word carefully and thoughtfully. And it's really easy to string together just sentences and to regurgitate what comes out in a press release or in a charging document. But to get to know that person, because that person's gonna be the main character of your story. They deserve, and your community deserves, for you to actually tell them their story, not, not one detail of it. Being homeless was just one detail of Destry's life, but there was a lot more to him. And, and the feedback that I got from the community on that story was pretty great. Like I got, you know, kudos. People were, people were moved by it. People, what it did was it made them realize that any one of us on any given day could be given a set of circumstances that take away our housing, that take away our freedom, that take away our voice. It could happen to any of us. It could happen to you, me, and it could happen in the next five minutes. And you keep that from happening by uplifting the people who, by, by raising awareness to those issues. So how do you approach a difficult story like this? Um, something that's really complex or something that you might have a hard time finding sources for? I mean, so generally the approach to a hard story like that is to be, be a good human, be compassionate, whether you're talking about somebody who's homeless or somebody who's committed a crime or whatever, um, you know, their taboo label is. Um, your, your job is to treat them like a human being. Um, I tell myself this all the time, and I think it was most reinforced to me when I worked for prisons, but it's like my job in this world is not to be the judge, the jury, or the executioner. My job as a human being is to treat other people like human beings. Even if I don't agree with what they've done or I don't understand their circumstance, my job is to treat people as a human being, to treat people object of, um, objectively. You know, in news, when you're covering politics, you know, you have to make a point, and I'll talk about this in J school, but, you know, keeping, keeping your position objective, you don't want to seem like a, a liberal outlet or a conservative outlet, like you need to be somewhere in the middle. Your job is just to give people facts. And I think that we could all do better at approaching people with that same level of objectiveness that we're told we're supposed to do when you're like political reporting. And so I would say the approach is just to treat people with humanity and also to like meet them where they're at. It's a huge ask to ask, you know, somebody like Destry's father who knew me for 30 seconds before I started asking questions. It is a huge thing to be like, now, let, now let's talk about the most vulnerable thing, the most horrible thing that's happened in your life, the thing that you're most ashamed of. That is a big ask of somebody. They're putting trust in you who are, you're a stranger and they're gonna tell you details that they're trusting that you're not going to exploit them and that you're gonna do this person's story justice. So, you know, when you're looking for sources or you have difficult situations like that, you, you have to treat people with compassion and meet them where they're at. And so, you know, um, when I did work, when I would work with prisoners I, a lot of times, you know, um, you know, when I would interact with them, which was quite often, I would have asks like work to be done. And I almost, I needed them to do pieces of it with me. But the reality is, is when I walked into those prisons, somebody could have watched somebody commit suicide. They could have just gotten out of solitary confinement. Their mom could have just died who they haven't seen in 10 years. And so, you approach him not walking on eggshells, but understanding that you don't really know their circumstance and you're maybe talking to them on the worst day of their life 
And so you have to meet them where they're at and just start a dialogue and let them know, I mean, this is what I always did, that you don't have to talk to me. I realize asking you to talk about the worst day of your life is seems cold and callous, but just, and so like, I understand that. So if you're not comfortable talking to me, you don't have to, that's your right. I'm not entitled to your story. I would like to tell it if you trust me, but I'm not entitled to your story. And so I think you have to remember that with tricky situations and, and, you know, and whether you're talking about, I mean, the budget or you're talking about homelessness or mental health, they're all very emotional issues and you should treat them gently and, and build relationships and build trust within people. And sometimes you have to do that in two minutes and sometimes you've got months to do it. It just depends on the situation. Um, when it's hard to find sources, you know, and a lot of times when you're dealing with death or crime, sometimes it's not even, you can't find sources. You can't always find sources who wanna to talk to you on the record. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think your job as a journalist is to find sources because there, there are sources out there and it's really easy to go Google somebody's name in court view and then write a graph in your story about all the times that this person has interacted with the criminal legal system, but that doesn't tell a story. That's just, you know, that's, that's lazy reporting, you know, so step, you know, the next step you can do is, you know, through those informations, like you can, you can pull those documents and you can find addresses and names and legal representation and you just start chipping away at it. Um, you know, and for that story, you know, for those, that series of homeless deaths that was occurring, Destry's story wasn't the only one I wrote. I wrote them about other people too, where I couldn't find sources, not easy sources. It didn't, I couldn't just search this person's name on Facebook or put it into LexisNexis and get like a series of phone numbers. I had to go down to Beans Cafe, where I knew this person frequented. And I knew that person frequented there because I had a relationship with the head of Beans Cafe, who I had asked. Um, but then I just talked to people. I just, I walked around and not even inside of Beans Cafe, outside on the streets where, there, you know, there's that line of like tents that pop up down by Beans. And you just start talking to people and, and, but you have to approach them humbly, not like, you're better or worse. You just treat people like people and the way that you would want to be treated if you were in that circumstance. And you just always have to remember that there, it, it's possible for any one of us to end up in a situation like that. And it's a lot easier than people to end up in that situation than most of us realize. So can you tell me what it's like to report on smaller rural communities and what, if any, um, unique challenges come along with that? So small rural communities, I, you know, I've thought this for a long time, but, it, you know, um, there are, Alaska has just the most incredible rural cultures and indigenous cultures um, and it doesn't always fit in with mainstream media. Like it doesn't fit into, you know, the city council beat or, you know, like on the Metro desk, it doesn't fit into those places. So you really have to find avenues to report on rural Alaska, but I think it's probably one of the most underreported areas. And there are good um, 
local media entities in a lot of places, but not all of them. And so my advice going into that situation too, is you, you also have to understand that like art, you know, my, I don't know where you're based, but I'm in Anchorage and you know, the culture here in Anchorage is much different than the traditional village. And so, you know, you have to do your homework. You should know things about um, the community that lives there. Um, but also, you know, I'm kind of loud and I talk a lot and that's not um, how a lot of our indigenous people communicate. They're more soft-spoken and listen and the way they tell stories they don't just tell stories just by just talking to you they tell stories through their food and through their art and through dance and it's just this incredibly beautiful thing so my advice in that is like all things you have if you go into those communities you have to do it humbly you know and know that that you are an outsider and you know nothing about their community and their culture and you just just listen to people um and I know that seems so basic, but that is how you can do the best reporting. There's a big stigma, you know, and I heard this a lot and I still hear it. You know, the only time urban Alaska reports on rural Alaska is in relation to, you know, alcohol abuse or something really horrific happens. And it creates this stigma um, and it creates a stigma that's really detrimental to, uh, you know, Alaska Native identity. Um, and there are some Indigenous people who I would recommend that you talk to in this space who are better equipped to answer, you know, to go into that than I am. Because um, there's Indigenous people who are working in the journalism space that have some really powerful things to say. But, you know, from my perspective is you, you just have to listen. You have to listen to people and go to community centers, you know, in rural Alaska, just to find people and to meet people. You can go to community centers, you can go to their little like AC shops, um, you know, and it, but if they have a media outlet there, like let's take Gnome, for example, you know, you leverage the reporters there and connect with them, you know, ask them what are, you know, their challenges in that community, or if you need ideas for interviews, you know, they're a great resource, not because they want to give away stories, but because they're invested in the story of rural Alaska. And so they see the value in continuing that story and creating a choir of voices who are, who are talking about rural Alaska. But like I said, you also can't only talk about rural Alaska in a really negative light and then expect rural Alaska to receive you warmly because there is a distrust and it's very valid. Absolutely. So kind of to wrap up our conversation a little bit, um, do you have any advice to give to young journalists who want to make sure more voices are heard in our community? Be involved in your community. You know, don't, don't just like regurgitate, you know, don't just regurgitate press releases. We've seen some really good like neighborhood focused reporting out of Mountain View, you know, and, but what makes those stories so wonderful is that the reporter who does that neighborhood focused reporting on a Mountain View lives in Mountain View. She's invested in the community, you know, she volunteers. So I guess my advice would be to get down and dirty, get to know your community, just because you have a college education or you, you know, are a correspondent at whatever news entity. Um, it doesn't mean you really know your community. It's really, really easy to be disconnected from like the sort of academic sense to like 
the on the ground sense of what your community is feeling. Um, and, and, and don't just talk to the communities that you're comfortable with, like get outside of your comfort zone. That's how you grow as a person and as a professional in journalism. You know, when you go to J school, you're gonna have to take this like wide variety of courses that cover all sorts of stuff. And when I went through it, I just thought to myself like, this is so stupid. When am I gonna use anthropology as a journalist? Um, but it's because it teaches you about people and that's your, you know, that's the most important thing you can do as a, as a journalist is to not just understand issues, but to be able to connect the dots of how they impact people. And, and you know, and, and not just one group of people, you know, um, I, you know, I go back to crime reporting, but when you're doing crime reporting, it's really easy to only talk to victims or victims rights groups and there's a lot of value and there's a lot of power in that, but talking to victims' rights groups doesn't tell you why we have a public safety problem. You have to talk to people who are involved in that system. So don't just talk to people you're comfortable with or the people that's easy. Get outside your comfort zone and, and, and listen. Talk less and listen more. That was At Me senior producer Quinn White speaking with Megan Edge. You've been listening to Zoom Room, a production of the Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music was composed by Kendrick Whiteman. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Denina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to supporters of our podcast, including the Alaska Press Club, James McCoy, and John O'Hara. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our program and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like Atme. Just go to patreon.com backslash Alaska Teen Media. You can also help us out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. For the Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Chloe Chobel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>